Well, this morning as we're looking at Genesis chapters 46 and 47, this part of Joseph's story highlights three important truths. They're realities, really. They're realities in the Christian life. So to help you more readily identify these three Christian realities in the Old Testament, I want to state them ahead of time in New Testament terms. And they're this. First, do not fear. Second, be a blessing. And third, Jesus is with us. I mean, as you can see, these are very prominent themes in the Christian life that we're supposed to be living. Here are, here are, three, here are three New Testament verses that should help us to see them in this Old Testament passage. Do not fear. In Hebrews chapter 13, we read, For Jesus said, I will never leave you nor forsake you, so we can confidently say, The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Be a blessing. Peter writes, Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to you this were for to this you were called, that you may be obtaining a blessing. So the church of the Lord Jesus Christ is free from fear. The church of the Lord Jesus Christ is called to bless others. And then the idea that Jesus is with us is a certain promise in Matthew 28 from Jesus himself. Jesus came and he said to the disciples, Go and make and baptize and teach, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And so the Lord Jesus Christ himself is with his church. In his true word, Old Testament and New Testament, God has told us that we do not have to live our lives in fear of anything or anyone. Instead, we are free to live lives that actually bless others. Because we are never alone. Jesus is present with us at every moment, in every place, always and without exception. These three important truths are not just topics of self-talk. They are reality for those who believe in God. Old Testament and New Testament. Joseph's life in Genesis chapters 46 and 47, sets our expectations of a Savior. He sets our expectations of a Savior that are ultimately and completely fulfilled in God's covenant gospel through the Lord Jesus Christ. So if you want to follow along in in Genesis, but also using your sermon outline, you'll see this theme, don't be afraid. God has purposefully placed us in this fallen world to bless others with his gospel, knowing that Jesus is with us and will bring us home. Let's begin reading in chapter 46. I'm going to read this in segments as we work our way through, rather than all at once. So Israel took his journey with all that he had and came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to the God of his father, Isaac. And God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, here I am. Then he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you up again. And Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. You know, it's a a step of faith 
We need to recognize that. It's a step of faith for Jacob to load up the wagons and head towards Egypt. And it's a really big deal. It's a really big deal to leave Canaan, which is the promised land. In chapter 12, Abraham went to Egypt to escape famine from Canaan, and he didn't do so well there. And in, in chapter 24, Isaac, Jacob's father, was, he was not allowed to leave the land of Canaan, not even to find a wife. And now Jacob has lived in Canaan for decades, and, and he knows that this is the land that God has promised him and his descendants, and he fears he could be making a mistake. So on the way, he stops at Beersheba to worship the Lord, the very place where both Abraham and Isaac, if you remember, made treaties of peace with the Philistines. So Beersheba is a place where God has blessed other peoples with peace through his covenant people. It's a place where commitments are made. And here, the Lord speaks to Jacob once again in a vision. And the Lord says to Jacob, do not be afraid. The reason God says don't be afraid is because Jacob's afraid. Why is he afraid? Well, it could be that you know, Jacob's pretty old and he's lived in Canaan for 22 years now. We're, we don't think about this so much. We're a mobile society. It's not a big deal for us to move anywhere for any reason and we can do it. It's not uncommon for, for retired people to move to get closer to their kids, kind of, what, kind of what Jacob's doing if you look at it in one sense. Even though Jacob is a sojourner, it's a big deal for Jacob to leave the land of Canaan. Maybe he still doubts if the news his sons have told him about Joseph is true. You know, that he's, that he's alive and that he's king in Egypt, basically. They've lied to him before. Is Joseph really alive and ruling in Egypt? I mean, both of those are shocking claims. And this is not young, strong, hardworking, opportunistic, 30-year-old Jacob. This is, as Moses pictures him, pathetic, old, has to be carried, doubtful Jacob. And he wonders if he's doing the right thing. Just then, Jacob's heavenly father calmly speaks true and calming words to Jacob's mind. I am your God. Do not be afraid. Don't you love God? Isn't he a gracious God? Then the Lord instills confidence and hope in Jacob in these promises. Don't be afraid to go down to Egypt. God assures Jacob that the reports are true and he's doing the right thing. Is, it's, there, uh, it's there in Egypt that I will make you a great nation. Now, this is not just a good move for Jacob to survive the famine, but it's God's covenant moving forward. In chapter 15, God foretold Abraham that his descendants would go out of the promised land and into a foreign land for 400 years where they would prosper and multiply. And then God would bring them back into the land of promise. God says, I myself will go down with you. God is not landlocked in Canaan. God will be present with Jacob in this pagan land. And we, of course, have double confidence that he will because we've already seen that God's with Joseph down in Egypt. And then the Lord promises Jacob this small but final comfort. Joseph's hand will close your eyes. At the end of Jacob's sojourn on earth, his beloved son will be there to comfort and care for him. 
Jacob will leave this life looking at Joseph and enter the next looking at Jesus. So we are totally set up. We are totally set up and ready for the reunion of Jacob and Joseph. We're stoked with anticipation. We've been waiting for this for a long time. But wait, it's time for one more genealogy. Let me pick up in verse 5. Then Jacob set out from Beersheba. The sons of Israel carried Jacob their father, their little ones and their wives, and the wagons that Pharaoh had sent to carry him. They also took their livestock and their goods, which they had gained in the land of Canaan, and came into Egypt, Jacob and all his offspring with him, his sons and his sons' sons with him, his daughters and his sons' daughters, all his offspring he brought with him into Egypt." This is Jacob's response to God's true word, which he just heard. Jacob brings everything into Egypt. Everything and everyone. That's the point of this genealogy being here. To emphasize that all Israel goes down to Egypt. This is God's covenant plan. For the sake of time, I'm not going to read the genealogy. You're already familiar with all of the main players. But it lists the names of Jacob's offspring by each of his wives. And with a little creative math, a little creative Old Testament math, they total up 70. Now, there's, there's a few things here and there. If you take into account two Leveret sons, which we talked about, and if you allow for Joseph's two sons, who are actually already in Egypt, they don't go down into Egypt, you eventually get to 70 of Jacob's descendants. But, but it's actually a much bigger caravan than that. And, and we know that, because that does not include daughters-in-law, nor all the slaves or the servants, are the other peoples, which he's accumulated along the way, which probably number in the hundreds, maybe thousands? So why does Moses, remember Moses is our author, insist on the number 70? Well, in one sense, the number 70, or any multiple of seven, symbolizes completeness. Jacob left no one behind. All the persons of the house of Jacob were 70, and they all went down into Egypt. In another sense, the point is not mathematical at all, but theological. Remember back, I know you have to remember way back now, remember the table of nations given in Genesis chapter 10, just before God's judgment at the Tower of Babel. He lists all of these nations, and the nations of the world are represented by those 70 descendants in that table of nations. Here, these 70 descendants will become God's one nation. It's as if God is creating a new humanity. This people of God will be the seed through which God will bring his creation plan to fulfillment. This is the covenant plan of God. And we see that Jacob is all in. That's Jacob's response to the word of God that God has spoken to him. Go all in with everyone and everything, trusting God's word that he will be with you and that he will bless you so you need not fear. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. Now, having been made to wait through another genealogy, we're really on the edge of our seats. I can see you. You're all pitched forward, ready to hear about this long-anticipated reunion, and here it comes. We're in verse 28. He had sent Judah ahead of him to Joseph to show the way for him into Goshen, and they came into the land of Goshen. Then Joseph prepared his chariot 
and went up to meet his father Israel in Goshen. He presented himself to him and fell on his neck and wept on his neck a good while. Israel said to Joseph, Now let me die, since I have seen your face and know that you are still alive. It's a sweet reunion, but it's pretty brief. It's kind of like a movie trailer that's actually better than the movie. For four chapters, we waited for Joseph to finally reunite with his brother Benjamin. And when he did, in chapter 45, we're told Joseph fell on Benjamin's neck and wept. And Benjamin fell on Joseph's neck and wept. And here we're told that there's only one person weeping. Joseph fell on his father's neck and wept on his father's neck for a good long while. But remarkably, Jacob does not weep. Why doesn't Jacob weep? After all, this is the son he could not stop weeping for when he thought he was dead 22 years ago. And I think that's the, that's the beginning of the problem. We expect to see tears of sorrow and then relief and then joy from Jacob. We, we expect him to go back 22 years and be that happy guy with his son. But Jacob is just all cried out. Jacob refused the comfort of God. And for 22 years, he has gripped his loss and not let go of his grief or his sorrow or his regret, and it takes a toll. Surely, he realizes that he himself is at fault for many of his bitter circumstances. His own conscience nags at him. As he replays memories in his mind, his own guilt weighs on him for his many failures and sins. So, regardless of how much it means to Joseph to see, or Jacob to see Joseph again, and it does mean a lot, his reunion with Joseph does not bring the relief and the joy that it might have. Because for so long, he has resisted the gracious mercy and comfort of God that God wanted to bring to his life. Now, Jacob's a believing man. I'm going to say Jacob's a Christian. We understand that term. I'm just going to say Jacob's a Christian. But Jacob is a weak, sad, little faith Christian man. Jacob allowed the things of the world to mean so much to him that the joy of God became to mean less to him. And so the lack of luster in this reunion is not the fault of Joseph nor of God, but of Jacob. He has diminished his heart's capacity for joy to the point that tears just don't work anymore. Nonetheless, God renewed his faith. God revived his spirit. God restored his family. Jacob does not experience this to the extent that he could have in his life, but it is there and it is real. God did graciously bring genuine reconciliation to Jacob. Now, now to, to pull you back from that edge of depression that you're feeling for Jacob right now, you need to remember, we do know that Jacob will experience unspeakable joy when his sojourning is complete. And he comes face to face with Jesus Christ. Right? 
Let's pick up in verse 31. Joseph said to his brothers and to his father's household, I will go up and tell Pharaoh, and I will say to him, My brothers in my father's household who were in the land of Canaan have come to me. And the men are shepherds, for they have been keeping of life, keepers of livestock, and they will have brought their flocks and their herds and all that they have. When Pharaoh calls on you and says, What is your occupation? You shall say, Your servants have been keepers of livestock from our youth, even until now, both we and our fathers, in order that you may dwell in the land of Goshen. For every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. So Joseph went in and told Pharaoh, My father and my brothers, with their flocks and herds and all they possess, have come from the land of Canaan. They are now in the land of Goshen. And from among his brothers he took five men and presented them to Pharaoh. Pharaoh said to his brothers, What is your occupation? And they said to Pharaoh, Your servants are shepherds, as our fathers were. They said to Pharaoh, We have come to sojourn in the land, so there is no pasture for your servants' flocks, for the famine is severe in the land of Canaan. And now, please, let your servants dwell in the land of Goshen. And then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Your father and your brothers have come to you. The land of Egypt is before you. Settle your father and your brothers in the best of the land. Let them settle in the land of Goshen. And if you know of any able men among them, put them in charge of my livestock. So Joseph has already guided his brothers into a region of Egypt called Goshen. So that's where the caravan is staged for now, but they're not permanently placed yet. And then Joseph coaches his brothers on what to say to Pharaoh so that Pharaoh will be favorably disposed to let them live in Goshen. And it works. Best I can tell, the Egyptians are a very clean and clean-shaven people. So they have a little bit of contempt for shepherds and ranchers who smell like their flocks and don't bathe as often and wear long beards. Which makes it a little ironic that the the people that they have contempt for end up living in the best of the land in Egypt. And the brothers actually receive a royal charter to tend Pharaoh's flocks as well. See, Goshen is a fertile land, perfect for grazing, plus it's on the northeast side of Egypt, close to Canaan, which is handy for any future exodus that might take place. But best of all, though Goshen is within the borders of Egypt, the people and the promise... Uh, The people of the promise, uh, Jacob and his family, will live separated from the people and the cultural influences of the Egyptians. Here's God's covenant people in a place where they can grow as a distinct nation. In Egypt, but not of Egypt, we might say. Let's pick up in verse 7. Then Joseph brought in Jacob his father and stood him before Pharaoh. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Jacob, how many are the days of the years of your life? And Jacob said to Pharaoh, the days of the years of my sojourning are 130 years. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life, and they have not attained to the days of the years of the life of my fathers in the days of their sojourning. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh and went out from the presence of Pharaoh. Then Joseph settled his father and his brothers and gave them a possession in the land of Egypt, in the best of the land, in the land of Ramses, as Pharaoh had commanded. And Joseph provided his brothers, his father and his brothers, and all his father's household with food, according to the number of their dependents. Now, this is a pretty shocking picture. I know we're favorably disposed to the Christians over the pagans in the Bible, but this is a shocking picture. Here is old Jacob 
sojourning Jacob, come to take refuge in Egypt, Jacob, standing in the palace before Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, and the most powerful man on earth at the time. And Jacob blesses Pharaoh. It's ironic because it is always the greater who blesses the lesser. And Jacob certainly looks like the lesser. And Pharaoh certainly appears to be the greater. But twice, when he enters and when he leaves, Jacob blesses Pharaoh. What's going on here? When chapter 12, verse 3, God made this covenant with Abraham and his descendants. Do you remember? You will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And that is what's taking place here. Abraham's descendants are blessing the nations. Jacob is blessing Pharaoh. Joseph is blessing Egypt and all the nations who come to him for food so that they might live and not die. And don't miss this. Don't miss this about Jacob. In blessing Pharaoh, Jacob is focusing on someone other than himself. He's behaving as a servant of God, carrying out the covenant promise of God. That's wonderful. That's wonderful, and it's important for us to see in Jacob's life. And then there's this funny little interaction. Pharaoh asks Jacob how old he is. And Jacob gives him an interesting and honest answer. The days of my sojourning are 130 years. Few and evil have been the days of my life, and fewer than the days of my father's. It, that sounds like a bit of a downer, but it's true. That's not just, not just that Jacob's life will be shorter than Isaac's and Abraham's, but I imagine that Jacob is reflecting on the fact that if he had responded to God's call the way Abraham did, with greater obedience his life would have been better. His life would have been better. The word sojourn is key here. Pharaoh asks the years of Jacob's life, but Jacob answers in the years of his sojourn on this earth. So it's, a, it's a subtle hint, but it's there, that Jacob is living by faith in God's promise of a land. He considers himself a sojourner. He's not looking for this land. He's looking for a heavenly land that he's going to be given. See, Jacob, I don't think, is complaining here. He's just reflecting on the bitter, sweet reality of his hard life and this momentous encounter. Jacob and his descendants, Joseph, are living in fulfillment of God's promise of blessing Pharaoh. And yet, it's been a hard and bitter road for Jacob. But God has been gracious to him and is with him to bless him, even in Egypt. You know, the glory of the blessing here is what follows in verses 13 to 26. The 13 to 26 isn't just, oh, we have to have a historical marker here. Here's the famine. Here's what Joseph does. No, it's a, it's, it's a narration of people coming to Joseph, willing to give everything to become Pharaoh's servants in order to get food to live. It's a picture of people coming to Jesus to get what they don't have so that they might live and not die. 
It's a picture of the gospel and Jesus who is the ultimate fulfillment of God's promise to bless the nations. That's what's in these next verses. I thought about summarizing them, but I want to read them. One, because I think they're so often just misinterpreted and misunderstood as to what they're doing. Uh, and, And I think it's helpful for us to understand that. So let's pick up in verse 13. Now there was no food in all the land, for the famine was very severe, so that the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan languished by reason of the famine. And Joseph gathered up all the money that was found in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan in exchange for the grain that they bought. And Joseph brought the money into Pharaoh's house. And when the money was all spent in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan, all the Egyptians came to Joseph and said, Give us food. Why should we die before your eyes? For our money is gone. And Joseph answered, Give your livestock, and I will give you food in exchange for your livestock, if your money is gone. So they brought their livestock to Joseph, and Joseph gave them food in exchange for the horses, flocks, the herds, the donkeys. He supplied them with food in exchange for all their livestock that year. And when that year was ended, they came to him with the following year and said to him, We will not hide from my Lord that our money is all spent. The herds of livestock are my Lord's. There is nothing left in the sight of my Lord but our bodies and our land. Why should we die before your eyes, both we and our land? Buy us and our land for food, and we will, and we with our Lord, our land, excuse me, will become servants of Pharaoh, and give us seed that we may live and not die, and that the land may not be desolate. So Joseph bought all the land of Egypt for Pharaoh. For all the Egyptians sold their fields because the famine was severe on them. The land became Pharaoh's. As for the people, he made servants of them from one end of Egypt to another. Only the land of the priests he did not buy, for the priests had a fixed allowance from Pharaoh and lived on the allowance that Pharaoh gave them. Therefore, they did not sell their land. Then Joseph said to the people, Behold, I have this day bought you and your land for Pharaoh. Now here is seed for you, and you shall sow the land. And at the harvest you shall give a fifth to Pharaoh, and four fifths shall be your own, as seed for the field, and as for food for yourselves and your households, and as food for your little ones. And they said, You have saved our lives. May it please my Lord, we will be servants to Pharaoh. So Joseph made it a statute concerning the land of Egypt. And it stands to this day that Pharaoh should have the fifth, and the land of the priests alone did not become Pharaoh's. Now it's Joseph who has wisely stored up provision in preparation for the famine. Notice the people. They don't expect something for nothing. They don't expect to stop working and receive a handout and go on the dole. They exchange something of value for something of value. First their money, then their livestock, until all they have left is their land and their labor. You know, you've noticed this this odd phrase that people keep repeating, why should we die before your eyes? Why should we die before your eyes? And I hear people misunderstanding this all the time. They want to apply this to Joseph as if to accuse Joseph for being a miser with the grain while the people of of Egypt die of starvation before his eyes. That's not what the people are saying. The people are applying this to themselves as if to say, why should we hold on to our money and our livestock when we can exchange them for the grain that we need to live? That's what they're saying. How foolish that would be for us to do that. It's the people who come up with the idea and offer their land and their labor to Joseph for food so that they might live. 
Notice Joseph's, notice Joseph's terms for the exchange of their land and their labor. He's very generous. When they plant the seeds and they grow the crops, they still get to keep 80%. 80% of the yield and, and continue to give Pharaoh the 20%. It's, it's no different than before the famine. They still work. They still have dignity. They enjoy the fruits of their labor. And the people exclaim in verse 25, You have saved our lives. May it please my Lord, we will be servants of Pharaoh. You know, that phrase, may it please my Lord, is literally translated, we've heard this before, Joseph, may we find favor in your eyes. May we find grace in your eyes. You know, you know that the Bible tells us that we are either slaves to sin or slaves to righteousness. These people have sold themselves into some sort of slavery. And listen to how they characterize it. You have saved us. Please be gracious to us and let us serve you. Joseph is merciful and kind and generous and saving on behalf of Pharaoh to the people of Egypt who come to him to get what they need but don't have so that they might live and not die. That's the gospel. This is a gospel passage. In Galatians chapter 3, verse 8, you'll remember Paul tells us that God preached the gospel to Abraham when he told Abraham, in you shall all the nations be blessed. That happened in Genesis chapter 12. It is the covenant gospel that will come about through Abraham's seed who is ultimately the Lord Jesus Christ. But here, in Genesis chapter 47, the partial fulfillment of the covenant gospel is accomplished through Jacob and Joseph. Here, the blessing is only physical salvation, that they would have food and live. And when the Egyptians run out of food, they come to Joseph and say, we cannot save ourselves. Be our Savior, and we will be your servants. Because Joseph is the life giver. In the same way, God saves Jacob's little family of 70 descendants through Joseph, who has what they need to live in the place where God wants them to live, where they might grow. And in the same way, Jesus is our Joseph. Jesus is our life giver. Jesus was rejected and refused falsely accused and condemned. He was humiliated and suffered, all to do God's covenant gospel work on the cross. Jesus was raised from the pit and appointed to majesty on high. He meets all of our needs with his sin-atoning death and life-giving resurrection. Jesus gives us the righteousness we do not have but need to live and not die so that our souls cry out, Jesus! Be our Savior, and we will be your servants. Dear friend, if you don't know, Jesus is the one who has given you life. And if you do not wake up every morning serving him, then you do not have what you need to live and not die. Come to him now. 
come and do what he says. Come and buy bread without money. How do you do that? Give him yourself. And you will go out in joy and be led forth in peace. You have stored up the wrath of God upon your sin, and your just wage is hell. But Jesus has taken the wrath of God that you deserve upon himself, if you would trust him. Jesus has stockpiles of righteousness to give you, if you'd rely upon him. Jesus tells those who would turn from their sin and follow him that that he will give you peace. Peace the likes of which the world does not know. But peace that will calm your heart. Quiet your fears. Come to Jesus and you may have it. What Moses wants us to see is that life does not come from the political powers of Egypt. Have you grasped that? Salvation and security and blessing and life are not found in Pharaoh or Egypt. They are found in the seed of Abraham. It's Joseph, the seed of Abraham, who's rescuing the nations. More specifically, Egypt did not save Israel. Israel saved Egypt. Let's pick up in verse 27. Thus Israel settled in the land of Egypt, in the land of Goshen, and they gained possessions in it and were fruitful and multiplied greatly. And Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years, so the days of Jacob, the early years of his life, were 147 years. Things have turned out pretty sweet for Israel. Really sweet. The whole famine section, you know, verses 13 to 26, are bookended by verses 12 and 27. Verse 12 tells us that Joseph provided food for his brother's house. Israel did not have to give Joseph their money or their livestock or become Pharaoh's servants. Verse 27, on the other end of the story, tells us that in Goshen, Israel was fruitful and multiplied. Now, we've heard those words many times before, but never in this way. God told Abraham to be fruitful and multiply. God instructed Noah to be fruitful and multiply. Here... God tells us that Israel was fruitful and multiplied. It's the first time we've seen it come to fruition. When we look back and see that what just happened is covenant fulfillment, that's encouraging. And what Jacob Jacob says next actually points forward to covenant promise. In verse 28, Again, Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years. The days of Jacob and the years of his life were 147 years total. And when the time drew near that Israel must die, he called his son Joseph and said to him, If now I have found favor in your sight, put your hand under my thigh and promise to deal kindly and truly with me. Do not bury me in Egypt, but let me lie with my fathers. Carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burying place. And Joseph answered, I will do as you have said. 
And Jacob said, swear to me. And Joseph swore to him. And then Israel bowed himself upon the head of his bed. So all the way, all the way back again in Genesis chapter 12, God promised Abraham four things. You remember? The promises that the covenant's built on. He promised him a great name, a great nation, to be a blessing, and land. Land, land, land. Jacob will live another 17 years in Goshen. But because he's old and in Egypt, he reflects on his death, and he turns to his son Joseph to make a request. And he says... If I have found favor in your sight. Remember Jacob's dream? Remember Jacob's second dream in which not only the stars, who are his brothers, bow to him, but even the sun and the moon, his dad and his mom, bow to him? That's what's happening here. Jacob is in his right mind, and he humbles himself, and he says, If I have found favor in your eyes... Joseph, when I die, bury me in the land of promise. Don't bury me in Egypt. Bury me in Machpelah, in the land of my fathers, in the land of my father's past and my descendants' future. Because that's the land God has promised. Because Jacob's hope was in the gospel promises of God. When Jacob refused to be comforted by God and lost sight of the promises of God, he became afraid, didn't he? It's where we started. Same thing happens to us. There are many Christians today who are just a bundle of fears, always afraid about something. Maybe that's you this morning. Sometimes we're just like, we're just like those disciples in the boat in the midst of the storm, crying out, Jesus, don't you care if we perish? And what does Jesus say? I'm in the boat. I care so much for you that I left the glories of heaven to be with you in this little boat, in this little storm. Won't you trust me? And then he shows them how foolish and fearful they are as he calms the waves and quiets the storm. Jesus is telling you, don't be afraid, for I'm with you. Look to Christ instead of your circumstances. And you will not only be free from fear, but you'll be free to bless others as you sojourn in this land that is not your home. Because you know, I will bring you home, Jesus says. You know, Jacob has come a long way in these two chapters. These two chapters full of big things and big plans and the purposes of God, marching forward, and yet God is not too busy to be gracious to Jacob. I will go down with you to Egypt and I will also bring you up again, and Joseph's hand will close your eyes. You see, faith in God's promises, the grace of God, smashes fears.
Yes, you have fears, but you also have a Savior who is so near, so close, so tender, so gracious, so forgiving. Do not be afraid. Trust him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for your grace. We want to thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. We want to thank you that you are with us. That you have made us not a self-serving people, but a God-serving people and an other-serving people. That you have placed within us the capacity to bless others by proclaiming the gospel. All for your glory. We pray that you would bring about your covenant promises through your church. In Christ's name, amen.